From the Three Degrees Discussion Studio, I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. Anyone who makes something uh, that has material require or uh, property requirements needs to get those analyzed by a, a, not only a third-party entity, but a third-party entity who's who knows what they're doing. And that's where the accreditation stand in, right? We know what we're doing. That was David Scanapico. David is a scientific development management manager at NSL Analytical. David is an experienced researcher with an interest in mechanical characterization, reliability testing of materials, and the development of novel metallic materials through additive manufacturing. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Or you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. Also, if you or anyone in your company are looking for materials, qualification, or general AM support, reach out to the team through our website or via email at info at 3degreescompany.com. Cool. David, well, thank you so much for joining the show today. Uh, excited for the conversation here. Um, we only recently met, so this is going to be our first uh, first talk, so it'll be good. Um, like I do with everyone, um, really like to start at the beginning. So um, where'd you grow up? What were some of those early years like? And did you have kind of an early inclination to engineering and materials uh, back in the day? Yeah, yeah, I've got uh, quite quite a story. I, I grew up uh, literally all over the world. Um, born in New York, went between there and Texas a couple of times, moved overseas to Abu Dhabi in the Middle East um, for a couple of years, and then uh, came back to Cleveland, Ohio, where I started college, and, and I've been here ever since. Um, but in terms of, uh, I always, always knew I wanted to be an engineer. Um, what type of engineer changed throughout my life? You know, as a, as a young kid playing video games, obviously computer engineer got pretty high up on my list for a while, but, um, I knew actually that I wanted to become a materials engineer when I went to college because I had started running triathlons. And as I was researching bikes, um, the bike frame itself is made of, of a lot of different things, steel, aluminum, carbon fiber. Um, there's a couple other ones. But the big thing was researching them and wondering, okay, what, I mean, what's the difference, right? Like, why is steel so heavy when aluminum can also hold a person just fine on a bike? And, and also, like, why is carbon fiber so expensive? Like, you know, all of this <laughs> is what's going through my mind as a high school kid. And then touring colleges, I, I found out that these are essentially questions that materials engineers ask, ask every day. Um, so I knew that's what I wanted to get into. And when I, I, when I was starting out, I was a baseball player. And so, oh yeah. So I liked every year that come up with a new baseball bat, whether it's yeah. aluminum, carbon fiber, titanium, whatever it was. And my first job out of, like a first internship was at Easton. Uh, mm -hmm. They make bike frames as well as they're most known yep. for baseball bats. And so I always thought like, Hey, like there's some, some person out there deciding these material choices and crazy <laughs> applications like bikes and bats or snowboards, whatever it might be. So right. Yeah. I, I, that's a, that's a funny coincidence. I, I actually really wanted to get into bike manufacturing when I first started college. I never had the opportunity to do that, um, but it was it was something that I was trying to get into. Um, 
I ended up falling into the forging industry and uh, worked Hopefully at not hammer. literally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <there you> <laughs> yeah, thankfully not literally. <laughs> um, but I did end up at a hammer forge. Um, and I, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to sit and watch a hammer forge go. But, I mean, these are car-sized blocks of steel that hammer down on red hot, you know, titanium billets and things like that to form them into, and we were an aerospace and energy forge. So they're basically making engine parts. Um, and I could sit there all day long and watch these huge hammers just wail on, on this metal, um, which it, it is kind of what led me to like, okay, I, metallurgy seems like a cool field. To get into, you know, um, uh, and 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 then I found myself uh, enjoying research as an undergraduate student. Um, went after a, a internship at NASA. Got rejected a few times, but eventually made my way in there. And and my first internship at NASA was to do powder characterization for additive manufacturing. Which um, which which group or which which NASA spot? I was at NASA Glenn Research Center uh, here in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, so, I mean, they do, the group I was with was the high temperature and smart alloys branch. So I don't know if you've heard of like GRX 810, uh, which is a pretty novel alloy that's just come out, come become public in the past year. Um, then you've got like shape memory alloys where they're making Rover tires out of them nowadays. Um, they, they do some really awesome stuff. And, and so that's where I, I started with powder characterization, moved my way up into bulk material characterization, and then started my PhD with NASA Glenn Research Center um, on my own alloy development project. Uh, so, and that's hopefully coming to an end this year. <laughs> <laughs> and did you have a tar, like, so throughout that time, like, you kind of kept narrowing it down, right? It was mm -hmm. materials and it was metallurgy. Like it seems like a big problem space to go and develop your own alloy. Like what, what were some of the driving, like what were some of the constraints in that? Or what, what were you, what was this a specific use case application or kind of interest area that you were really targeting? Yeah. I, um, I, Really, what what happened is that I'm just a very, always very curious. I love learning new things, love to have new experiences and stuff like that. And so, like you said, I kept narrowing it down, kept thinking, all right, metallurgy, let's go try a bunch of stuff in metallurgy, you know, do a bunch of weird things. Uh, when I went back to school to research um, and then to narrow down into this well, narrow down in quotes or uh, into this alloy development spectrum, which is actually really broad because what happened was um, my mentor at NASA, uh, Dr. David Ellis, um, he had, for his PhD many years ago, invented this alloy GR-COP42. It's a copper chrome niobium alloy. And at the time, it was a candidate to replace combustion chambers in the shuttle program for the propulsion technology. But the shuttle program shut down in the early 2000s, and so the alloy kind of got sidelined. 
until additive manufacturing started picking up. And they found out that while pure copper is pretty challenging to work with, the GR cop alloys, just a little bit of chrome and niobium that you add, makes it so easy to print uh, in additive manufacturing. And so NASA has put a significant amount of resources into developing additively manufactured combustion chambers made from GR cop. And so, of course, you write the the question that NASA asks is, all right, what's next, right? This thing prints well, we can make a combustion chamber, that's done. What's next? And so the work that Dr. Ellis and I were doing was to say, okay, well, what if we could, you know, you, you've got these layers of powder. What if we can change the composition, say it at every 10 layers or so? And, and even better than that, um, what if we remove the gas atomization step that's in GRCOP 42? Um, because it's it's a relatively expensive step. You would need to be very careful that there's no excess niobium uh, in the in the material. And so the my PhD was on in situ alloying GRCOP 42. And with the with the desire to get to a point where we can gradient the properties of the alloy. Um, because it's a very simple exchange of pure copper matrix, chrome two niobium, strengthening dispersoids, and more dispersed. The more dispersoids you have, the lower the thermal conductivity, the but the higher the strength, and then vice versa if you have less. And so, in a combustion chamber, the trade-off of strength and thermal conductivity is extremely important. And if you could focus where you're doing that within the actual structure, you basically use materials as a new design constraint or, or remove the constraint of design in your properties, you, you get more efficiency, you can get thinner walls that are better in terms of weight, especially for rockets where it's you know, $10,000 a pound to get something into low Earth or orbit. You know, you, you could save hundreds of thousands of dollars just by removing a few pounds of copper from the, from the uh, engine. So, so that's the work that we've done, and and it went uh, relatively well, uh, especially considering the effect that COVID had on on NASA and their ability to do work. Um, but yeah, uh, and I I guess to circle back on the question of narrowing the scope. The the funny part is that the alloy development work was extremely broad. Uh, I worked with elemental powders did ball milling, did 3D printing, did uh, wet chemistry experiments, did micro microscopy uh, microstructure experiments, then into mechanical testing as well, failure analysis. I mean, literally the whole gambit of materials that you can work with, except for raw ore, I did it in during my PhD. Um, and and so it's, it's got me this uniquely broad perspective for having such a niche degree and a niche topic uh, in terms of analysis of materials. So with the kind of in-situ processing or gradient, is the mechanism within that laser power or kind of if like how much energy you put into a given layer can impact the chemical composition of the, the final solidified alloy? 
Yeah, it, it, it's a not quite a chemical composition, but the properties. So uh, okay. Jericop is a, is a unique case where the chrome and niobium have an extremely high um, energy to react. They're, they're, it's very fast reaction and it occurs almost instantly as long as it's within the liquid copper. Once copper is solid, they can't quite find each other. Um, and so the longer you keep copper liquid for while you're 3D printing, the larger your precipitates or your dispersoids can get. And so then you have a, a weakening of the strength with larger um, dispersoids. So trying to find that that perfect spot where you're getting everything liquid enough to spread and fuse and melt the chrome and niobium, but then moving the laser off of a spot fast enough that, that copper solidifies and the chrome and niobium don't have a chance to grow obscenely large. Um, that was the fine tuning that we had to do. Uh, the, the, the process was pretty readily capable of happening. Uh, we didn't have much difficulty on the reaction side of things. And how do you go about that? I mean, we talked to a lot of um, folks doing 3D printing design of experiments. So like talk us through kind of what's what was your process in that and thinking about how to keep, how to measure it, how to kind of keep in mind that this is sometimes can be a long process of like getting a, a build going. There's other people right. working on the machine potentially. Like what, what was your, um, what were some of those fine tuning things that you approached this problem with? Yeah. So uh, we, we actually, we spent a little while uh, doing the, and this was, you know, years ago doing the whole shooting in the dark, print a bunch of blocks with different laser speeds and powers and see what comes out. Um, and then we did get a little smarter about it and we moved off of the machine entirely and took our powder over to differential scanning calorimetry as well as um, uh, elevated temperature XRD. And between those two experiments, we were able to uh, effectively predict the speed at which um, the reaction occurs and the temperatures at which the reaction occurs, um, which is which is why I can so confidently tell you that as soon as the copper is liquid, the chrome and niobium just throw themselves together because that's that's what we were able to find out. And um, so at, at that point, it's like okay, we know how much energy needs to go into this weld pool to get the reaction to occur and to fully melt copper. And then it's it's a little back of the envelope calculations because the energy of the laser is not quite a perfect, uh, perfectly reliable calculation. Um, and how do you m map that back to like DSC and XRD where they're, they're just different timescales, right? Like you're blasting a energy yeah. into a powder right. very quickly with with the laser versus like these things, unless I don't know all the latest DSC, you may be able to get that no, fast, but like, you're, you're, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're a hundred percent right. Uh, the, the time scales. So XRD was the slowest to heat up. Uh, DSC was the middle range. And obviously, um, uh, additive manufacturing has its extremely high thermal gradient. Um, and so we mostly leaned on the 
energy component rather than necessarily the temperature component. Because as long as you can expect that you're putting in the right amount of energy to get from, uh, you know, room temperature up to you've melted and then resolidified the copper, mm-hmm. you, you should you should be get pretty close, right? <laughs> you know, and, and so we still we still did parameter development in that space, even having that energy background. But at least we were we were targeted with it, um, and so there was a bit more it was a bit more elegant than just shooting in the dark, um, and and it provides insight, right? If I wanted to go try to in situ alloy something else, a new material, um, the whole idea is that we don't have to do the whole broad guess in the dark kind of parameter development we have a a more pointed strategy to guide that process and we've developed the strategy so that um, future work to try to repeat this with other alloys can be more successful or or easier um, uh, across the board i guess two questions on top of that so once so you've got a range, you know, you you can fine tune the, the, the laser parameters, the machine parameters to get this in situ alloying. What are your methods for measurement? And then I'll probably lead us into some good NSL fodder. But if, yeah, if you're making sure. a, if you're making a part, mm-hmm. how do you know you did well in that? And yeah. then on top of that, like how, you mentioned kind of the word gradient. Like I, I'm assuming you have like it's a it's a gradient. It's a it's a blurry line versus a sharp interface. Right. Um, right. How much control do you have in terms of spacing? Is it just by like it's going to be bleed a couple layers? So if you have 40 microns, it's going to be like it's like 120 microns is kind of your your right. your edge. Um, so what are your thoughts there? Yeah. So I, you're. Um... You're getting to the the edge of the work, actually, which is, which is great because this is the part that and I'm we're really only ten minutes in. <laughs> we're only ten minutes in. Uh, plenty of time for NSL stuff, right? Um, yeah. So we uh, we knew what our metric was going to be, um, and that was primarily going to be the phase analysis. So uh, it's a two phase material. There's copper and there's chrome to niobium, and and maybe some excess chrome. But that's really it, like two, three phases. phases. Um, and so uh, early on in the work, we wanted to confirm this with you know, the traditional raw material so that we had a metric to compare to as we were working. And we found that the best strategy was to dissolve, do a phase extraction, dissolve all the copper out. Because it's in the sense of this reaction, it's boring. It, it's, it's copper when it starts and it's copper when it finishes and that's yeah. it. Um, so we dissolve all the copper out, and all you're left with is the the dispersoids um, that we can then do XRD on and understand all the phases that are existing in our dispersoids. And like I said, really, there should be two. There should be chrome to niobium and maybe some elemental chromium. Um, and that was not the case in most of the work. Uh, we got a lot of oxides. <laughs> uh, we learned that even the relatively low partial pressure of oxygen in an AM system is not sufficient when you have liquid niobium. Uh, <laughs> and 
and then also just COVID, everything shutting down for a couple of, for a year or two, our powder expired and there was just, there's no money in an academic budget to go buy another $50,000 of powder <laughs> to repeat experiments. Um, so I, I, I say that we knew what our metric was and, and we never quite perfected it, right? But but all things considered, assuming you can reduce the partial pressure of oxygen in your in your AM system and not have expired powder to work with, uh, you should be able to get that work done with a couple of tweaks of some engineering controls. You know, it kind of leaves the realm of research and goes into the realm of development and fine tuning. Um, and and so we never we never really did start playing with what you can do gradient wise, um, but we know that the the remelting was about two or three layers depending on your parameters, and so you would expect some blurriness um, for again depending on your layer size, 100 microns or 200 microns um, as you're building as you're transitioning between layers. And I mean, that 200 microns is not a lot of, not a huge thickness for a blurry line. Um, and, and honestly, the, the blurriness is far better than a sharp, uh, change. So I would almost let that, it just, you know, thinking forward here, if I was designing it, I would let that be a larger blurry line than our minimum capability. Um, you know, this is the kind of, work that you get into when you're trying to weld two things together and the weakest point is not either of the materials but actually at the edge of the weld where you have like heat affected zone um, because there's such a sharp contrast between you know the two materials as well as the temperature gradients that you get the weakest material at that point um, so the advantage with am and this gradient this potential gradient process is that you don't have seams and you can blur it as much as you want and not have a single seam. And then your, your material, your weakest point is going to be where your weakest properties are for whatever you're working with. Um, so you could, you could probably almost design in a failure point. Um, into a single component and know that it's going to fail exactly in one spot without having to do geometric effects just from material properties alone. And so you, you kind of wrap up the, the PR in the process of wrapping up the PhD. Did you ever have the thought of going into academia, like continuing academia, going to teach or when, what was the transition out of academic life? Um, yeah, I, I honestly, when, when Ed called me, I didn't uh, quite know what I wanted to do. Um, and what I get to do here at NSL is uh, support all of the testing that I did for my PhD. I mean, we do, we do ICP elemental analysis, we do XRD, we do microstructure, we do mechanical properties. So it's all the testing that I used to do for my PhD, I now support from a scientific standpoint. Um, and, and I still, I do have an interest in teaching. I have some plans to start getting back into teaching um, through professional societies and things like that. Uh, that's 
a next year thing though, still writing a dissertation. <laughs> um, but uh, academia, uh, to me, uh, it, it was not really ever on the table. Um, seeing young professors start labs right out of their PhDs, it looked like a very difficult uh, process. And it, it just wasn't something that excited me so much that I thought I wanted to do it. Um, I, I could definitely see, you know, 10, 20 years down the line, uh, leaving industry and going back to academia or something like that, and then starting a lab with, with something behind me. Um, but it, it just looks, it looks particularly difficult from a, from a young professor standpoint. And so maybe talk a little bit about NSL in terms of what, what you guys do and what you specifically do. I mean, you have a, like material testing isn't unique to 3d printing. And I know with Ed there additive manufacturing and for those who are listening at Herderick, um, is the Ed we're talking about podcast guest somewhere in the eighties or nineties, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, and I don't know if, I don't think he was at NSL at the time. I'd have to go back in terms of, and listen to when he was there, but maybe just a, a broad description of what NSL is. And, um, and then we can kind of dive into to some of the specifics there. Sounds great. Yeah. So uh, NSL analytical, uh, we're a, we're a third party testing lab credited through ANAB, uh, NADCAP, and ISO. Um, so those uh, will make sense to anyone who's in the manufacturing industry. They might not make sense to other people. But uh, what those are, they're, they're certifying bodies where anyone who makes something uh, that has material require or uh, property requirements needs to get those analyzed by a, a, not only a third-party entity, but a third-party entity who's who knows what they're doing. And that's where the accreditation stand in, right? We know what we're doing. And so our processes are, are rigorously audited and we have expert technicians and expert scientists and chemists who test materials in all stages of their life, raw material, final products, uh, um, preformed products, everything. And we provide those results and make sure that what's being produced is being produced right and in the right way. And, uh, and we pr provide that kind of support, failure analysis support, consulting support to all of our customers. Um, and Ed, Ed Herderick and my charge as both of us have been hired in the last year is to bring uh, some research and development to the table. Um, so with my background in, in alloy development, and in kind of advanced testing techniques, uh, we're going to start bringing that into a more uh, accredited and controlled light. And it's going to be a bit of a walk, but I think that we're, we're capable of doing it here. Um, and is that specific yeah. to 3D printing? I mean, it, I mean, there's a lot of testing going on in 3D printing, but that's not necessarily all of the materials. World. Right. Uh, you know, and as 3D printing is a is a significant component to what we're here uh, to develop for, because, you know, as uh, I mean, I'm sure you pro have probably had guests on here who talk about the qualification of 3D printed components. It's not an it's not a trivial question to say, how do we know that our 3D printing processes are reliable? 
and how can we prove that they're reliable? Um, because, you know, who knows? You buy powder from a slightly different supplier and maybe the chemistry is ever so slightly different and then your your parameters are not quite as effective as you expect them to be and, and it cascades. Um, and so having that reliability is critical to the production of parts that are going to go into consumers' hands, um, be it spaceships, cars, or phones. Like that, we need to know that our materials are reliable, and uh, and what we're producing is reliable. And that's a a huge part of the AM industry at this moment. I, I, I don't think I need to <laughs> tell you that. And what's the balance between? I mean, there's the mechanical chemical analysis, right? That if you get a machine in the first six months, people are doing dog bones and Sharpie and density cubes and sending you powder samples. But at some point people have to get to parts and geometries. How much of the testing of actual parts do you do versus coupons and more materials centric? Yeah. So coupons type of thing. Yeah. From a, so from a, non-AM perspective, it's almost entirely full parts. I mean, we've got a we've got a shop in the back that receives, you know, full foragings that they cut up and machine into tensils and things like that. And that's where we would want to get for the AM industry. Um, there's just not as much production of true parts yet um, that that comes through our window at least. And so that's part of the advancement in the testing is uh, you, you want to take advantage of, you know, thin wall additive manufacturing techniques, you know, stacking parts in various ways. And so you just need to figure out the industry needs to find a standard for how do we approach thin walls, right? I can't pull a dog bone out of a thin wall sample unless we've, you know, adjusted what we define the dog bones to be, but that's ASTM has to write a standard, ANAB and NABCAP have to agree that the standard is good enough. Testing labs have to become accredited to do that new standard. You know, it's, it's a, it's, I hate to say it, it's a multi-year process after the standard has been written in the first place. <laughs> and, and we don't even have the standards written yet. So it's, it's got a couple of years to go. Uh, guaranteed, but the effort is there and the ideas are there. Uh, we just need to get keep moving on it, really. And what do you see as kind of the maturity of most customers that you, you, you're getting parts from? Are these folks that are like, hey, we've invested in a couple of additive machines, we're starting to kind of tiptoe into production, but we need some help and a third-party lab to, to help validate it? Or is it like, hey, we don't have all of this machinery in-house, right? We don't have a tensile. We don't have a chemical. We can't test chemical composition. Like what's what's the balance of people like just really leveraging you for the certifications that you guys have and the ability to do the mm-hmm. tests or just the machine capabilities and say, okay, hey, we need a partner just to do the materials testing for us. Right, right. Um. It's I, I, it's pretty evenly spread to be totally honest. The the we, there are a lot of additive startups that are that have their ideas, they're interested, they're eager, and they're trying to make 
their own mark in the industry. And along with being a startup, they don't have the the money or really the justification to go buy a tensile machine, an ICP machine, you know, a, a couple of Lecos to do oxygen identification, right? And so uh, we we love partnering with them to help them develop their material. Um, and then we we also have several customers who are uh, more or less producing real parts, um, and they might have some of their own capabilities in house, but but maybe they have other priorities, right? And so we're a backup lab in some cases, and in other cases, you know, they have an ICP machine in house, so they don't have a tensile tester, or vice versa. And so we do the we do the alternative, um, but pretty much. I mean, one one of our major selling point is our accreditations. That that they're they're no small feat, and certainly, no matter where your stage of development is, if you say, "Hey, look at these properties. These are accredited testing properties." I mean, that is a feat. You know, to have developed a product that can consistently develop properties um, from a third party lab, whether it's us or whether it's somebody else. It, it's a feat. That's a great, great accomplishment for anyone. How much of the engagement do you do with designing testing experiments, right? It's like people send you tensile dog bones, like you can get them just kind of say whatever, right? I mean, the, right. the number is the number, but like how they use it, you probably don't really care other than like, hey, this <laughs> is your data sheet. Like right. how much of it is upfront? Like, Hey, maybe you should structure it in the sense that don't put all the dog bones in the middle. Maybe do some different axes. Maybe do some taller parts or whatever it may be. But are you getting into that level of? I guess it's more consulting versus mm-hmm. versus testing. Yeah, that's that's actually um, it, it surprised me when I started here. It's a very standard thing to do when talking to customers. Um, you know, we talk to a lot of customers who are experts in their application and are experts in their design, but are not necessarily experts in materials characterization. And so they might know that they need to check out certain um, aspects of their material, but there's there's a lot of techniques that could get you there. You know, do you want to do uh, optical emission spectroscopy or spectrometry, or do you want to do mass spectrometry, or do you need to leave ICP entirely and go to like you know something else? Um, right, just from an analytical chemistry perspective. And so uh, I would say I'm on more than one call a week where we're talking to customers, five or six maybe total a week, where we're talking to customers, understanding what what they're actually looking for, and then providing some insight on how to get there in you know, a cost-effective, a time-effective way. Um, and then uh, the material constraints, again, are also not an insignificant challenge, right? There are some elements that don't play nicely in certain analysis techniques. And so you, we have to steer them towards other things uh, because they're just not going to get a high-quality answer. Um, uh, and I, I wish I could... The only example I can think of is is a little bit out of the 
out of the fantasy realm, but uh, like when you're doing oxygen carbon sulfur analysis, working with something that has high refractory alloy content is is challenging because they're so high temperature uh, that they kind of gum up the machine and you just don't get the high quality readings that you get on something like nickel or, or something like that, uh, nickel-based alloys. And so it's it's having that expertise of the actual tests uh, that we also provide the customers on a very regular basis. And it, and I, it's a very normal thing for us to talk about. So it's not, um, yeah. And anyone who's worried about not knowing exactly what tests they need to do is should not be afraid. We'll, we'll happily help you out. What are the, uh, uh, I guess, what are the top three tests that you see for additive parts? If I had to guess, it'd be fatigue, tensile, chemical composition in that order. I, I might throw chemical above tensile. Okay. But fatigue, but those are the three that I would go after immediately yeah. too. Um, fatigue is is so critical, especially for AM. Um, part of the work that I, that the team that I was a part of at Case Western Reserve during my uh, PhD did an extensive fatigue analysis of Ti-6-4 additively manufactured and found that even, you know, when you think you have ideal parameters from a metallographic standpoint, right, you've done your porosity imaging and, and you've found there's nearly no porosity, you're at 99.9 plus percent density. Uh, you can still get these tiny little defects that a fatigue crack will find and will initiate off <laughs> and will fail early because of it. Um, and and again, it, it leans into the qualification. How do we know that we got reliable material coming out every single print? Um, you, you just can't have uh, two orders of magnitude span on your fatigue lifetime. It's it's untenable to work on a design space that has that kind of uncertainty. Um, and and so part of this effort was to help illustrate that and maybe illustrate ways that they can be that could be mitigated. Um, I was only partially involved in it, so I don't quite have all the knowledge of everything that they've done. I did I did a significant amount of fractography for them, um, but uh, it's it's a challenge to make sure that the fatigue properties are where they need to be, for sure. And so, last couple of questions as we wrap up. I mean, what are you excited for looking out kind of the next six months as you kind of get your career started at NSL? Yeah, I, I am excited. Uh, Primarily to start doing more um, educational things. Uh, I love nerding out about material science. Love nerding about out about uh, material characterization. Um, Ed and I have recently started doing little um, posts on the NSL analytical LinkedIn about different testing techniques and details, and just getting real real nerdy with it. Um, so so that's really exciting. Um, I'm, I'm also excited to continue to learn i've been in a and this sounds like complaining and i'm not complaining i've been in such a a well of 
high temperature alloys for space applications, uh, you start to think that that's the only thing anyone ever cares about. <laughs> but um, there's a lot of other cool stuff going on in the world. Um, one of my large charges is to learn about batteries, for example. You know, I'm a metallurgist by trade and I need to go learn about batteries. And, and there's a lot of stuff going on with batteries that are very, very cool. Um, so I'm excited to be in the position I am because of the breadth that I get to go after and learn about. Awesome. And last question I asked this of uh, everyone is like, what's a, a book recommendation? What's a favorite book, favorite uh, thing that you gained a lot from either in your career, personal life that you'd like to share with the audience? Ooh. Uh, I will. What, what, so I'm a, actually a, a big nonfiction reader. And so there's a book. I think I have it right now. Uh, it's called Rain by David Epstein. Um, it, it kind of talks about the power of having broad knowledge um, and how that can help you overcome challenges in sometimes, in some cases, better than being a niche, you know, bored in a hole kind of a, a person um, or an expert like that. Um, so Go, go out and learn some weird stuff and, and see. That's my recommendation. Fantastic. Well, David, thanks so much for joining the show. I look forward to seeing you uh, in the uh, the conference circuit, I'm sure, one of these days. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, and it's great to meet you.